sure you sang on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star as a child? I think it was. Tw- thank you for this. It was. <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Yeah. So what was that? <laughs> I also do a great rendition of I was a teenage whore I got, you know, dragged into some studio by somebody and uh, I sang this little Christmas record and, okay, uh, the full story me and Prince Charles, it's all out Um, and it it, it was this uh, it was this thing plastic Santa Claus, okay it was red, little beard and all that. And you put, you bought it for kids and you put this record in. I wish I could find one. Anyone out there got one, please give it to me. Send it to me. I'll pay good money, good dollar. And uh, you, you, you stick this uh, record in and you get instant, you know, me, me, singing really badly, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I think it was Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It's not in the greatest hits. It's one. not in the greatest hits, no. Push for it, man. This Extra Soul Area is episode 172, the podcast that aims to dive deep and keep you informed about all things in the NXS world, doing with a bunch of patrons and listeners and very much my compadre B. Happy Christmas for yesterday. Happy Boxing Day today. I just realised they don't call it Boxing Day in America. Did you know that? No. And hello, by the way. <laughs> Do you call it that in the UK, don't you? Boxing Day? We did, yeah, when I was there. Generally, it's related to putting all your boxes out after a massive Christmas day. Now... What was it like in the Beemeister's uh, household for Christmas Day? Oh, wow. We had lots of training and uh, lots of exercise things. So I think we're all going to get quite fit this year. Well, next year, even. To work off the uh, excess food that we all like to consume on that day of the year. And uh, I guess if you are listening today, it's Boxing Day, 26th of December, and uh, you've got a little present to open up just after the day or two of presents. So we hope this episode finds you well and very excited, but it's going to be a feature episode today on the Michael Hutchins solo album. Yeah, I just want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. You missed okay. it saying her Merry Christmas and Merry Christmas to you, Hayden. Thank you very much. And yes, I am very looking forward to this, but we're not going to do a review of each song. You've unearthed um, quite well, a lot of stuff, is that yeah, right? Yeah, well, I try and pick this sort of stuff because I've had a lot of fun going back and doing the research. And also, you know, you know what you know and then you compare it to your research and you go, oh, there's a little extra tidbit there, but... Before we go into that, um, we just came off uh, an episode where we were able to talk about the, well, as I would refer to him as Terrence Trentarby, but he does like to go by another name these days, B. I'm going to test you out here. Can you pronounce his name correctly? I can't. Sananda Matreya. We want to say a bit of a thank you to Sananda because I know you reached out via uh, Instagram and you got a nice little message back and uh, he was very keen just to know that he's referred these days as Sananda Matreya. I think we did justice to that through the tone of the podcast and hopefully uh, if he did get a chance to listen to Sananda, you enjoyed it as well and uh, we wish you and your family well. Now, B, uh, it is Christmas, and I know you've had sort of a lot of Christmas presents on your desk, but is there anything in the NXS world that's come via uh, your little uh, busy bee environment? Well, I want to say thank you to everybody that sent me Christmas presents this year, so that was very, very kind of you. And I also was at work, Hayden, and you listen to this one. Yes. At work, working, <laughs> pretend, 
And someone came in and we started talking about these new smart glasses that I've told you about. I said, oh yeah, I've got a podcast, you know, and I'm, I want to do some live streaming with it. And he goes, oh yeah, what's that about in excess? And he said, my cousin did an album with Michael. And I went, what? And he says, yeah, my cousin is Ollie Olsen. I was like, are you kidding? Yeah, so I want to say hello to Ben. Right, pretty cool one, B. I reckon that's a well done, well well captured. Yeah, so hello to Ben. Ben is also a musician and he um, is um, more into the sort of like electric side of music. So electronics? he does something called electronics. He does yep. something called whips. Do you know anything about whips? Look, uh, in my darkest late night hours, uh, I've been known to, but no, not musically speaking, do you? Okay, well, musically speaking, it means that if you've got a musical project, a few of you can get together and then it's not about critiquing, it's more about um, helping each other out with their musical things and it's called a whip. Okay. So I'm going to go along and uh, see what Coffs Harbour are, are whipping about. <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, moving along, we'll straighten up. Well, I didn't get any Christmas presents from our listeners, and that's okay. I don't have any problems with that because B's the popular one on this podcast, and she's the she's the engine room. I'm just merely the uh, no. I don't know, I'm, I'm I'm just the chop liver. That's fine. Yeah. That's that's perfectly fine as long as you're listening, and as long as you maybe sign up to be a patron. That's uh, all we. Uh, well, that's more than enough, I would say. But uh, as long as you're enjoying it and listening and spreading NSS love, that's all I can ask for. So, but uh, but after this episode, we're going to have a couple of weeks off. Um, we're going to be, uh, I guess, enjoying life a little bit again with our families and things. But I just wanted to say at the outset of this this episode, I'm really really proud of this year of the guests and the people we've had on. You know, the efforts that you've put into things. Uh, I want to thank you, you know, for that. But also, too, I just feel like the show has developed and grown this year and looking forward to some of the things that we've got in store next year to sort of keep the momentum going. Yes, I really thought that we were crashing to an end last year, the way that we were going through things so quickly, but with just so much more to unpack. So hello to all your newbies, because it's probably another couple of years worth of um Stuff coming to you, and if in doubt, I'll find I'll I'll find some stuff to be. <laughs> and me, and Hayden. Yes. Thank you so much for picking me to be your partner in all of this. It's been a great journey. No problems. No problems. One on one's equaling four. We hope. And uh, uh, again, we couldn't put this together without all the support of our our patrons. And uh, uh, I'd like to thank also Nick Egan for his lovely words last week that we put on again regarding the patron program. And I think we put that on just before the uh, outro song last week. But if you are, you know, as I said, enjoying what we do and obviously don't want to be a broken record, but for five, ten dollars a month, twenty dollars a month or whatever, you can find a way of contributing to our little, little podcast that's growing legs. It is so valuable for us because uh, ain't cheap running a podcast and uh, definitely takes a lot of time and effort, so we welcome it. But that aside, uh, more than anything, we want to welcome and thank the existing patrons who, without their support, we wouldn't be here. So all the patrons who have been with us not only recently, but also throughout this year, and our long-term patrons who we really want to specially recognise, you know, who have been there from the get-go, thank you and happy Christmas. I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside, about 10,000 people at least. Hello to our honorary members, Tim Ferris, Nick Egan, Mark Opex, Richard Simpkin, Cameron Adams, Mary Woods, Darren Jones, and Paul Jolie. Our patrons, Carmen, Carrie-Anne, Laurie, Danielle, Sarah Markham, Sarah Camia, Dr. Jim, Katie, Lisa Mack, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Pedro, Mandy, Amanda H, Amanda V, David, Paul Buckley, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Jim, Jackie, Sheila, Shannon, Brett, Suzanne, Laurel, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Laurie, Jill, Heidi, Paula, Lisa, Nancy, Juliet, Scott, Anthea, Maria, Tracy, Vernon, Jamie, Diana, Stefan, Andrew, Georgie, Stephen, Keisha, Mark and Vern, Mandy Jane, Nick, Sula, Amy, Diane, Paul P, Paul B, Alicia, Jay, John, Anne, Kathy and our new member, Chantelle. And our special mentions go to Sue D, Joe Robbins, John A. Vink, Michael Spriggs, Glenn Davis, Paul Boozy, and Helen Kirkwood. Welcome to the podcast. Well, 
gorgeous people. Thank you so much. We just love interacting with you all. And Hayden, you've given up your Christmas meal to record this today, haven't you? Getting B and I in the same time zone and everything there to be working sometimes can be always a bit of a battle with our working commitments. B is the number one salesperson in Australia or Australasia at the moment with, with OPSM. She's got the biggest sales. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty good. She's, she's not only sells in the shop, but she's been able to deploy sales through the internet, through our podcast, and uh, <laughs> is always wearing a nice snappy pair of glasses every time we record. So, yeah, it looks like many logs for me tonight, which which will come my way, but that's okay. This is really a feature episode, B, so we're going to get right into it and say, what's time for? Hey, this is Tim Farris. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. And now it's time for Topic of the Week. All right. Well, uh, we're getting straight into it today in a feature episode. No puffery, no news, no extra extracurricular stuff. We're getting straight sort of into it. And uh, we happen to be landing in 1999 again, where, as we said last week, there were two significant events in 1999, one of them being the uh, uh, re-emergence of the band playing their, their first live gig. Uh, really uh, as a band, not so much as a backup to Jimmy Barnes at Stadium Australia, which we mentioned last week. Oh, we should say hello to Jimmy. Uh, yes, well, yes. Yeah, Jimmy's had open heart surgery, for those who don't know. The co-singer co- uh, on Good Times, he's had open heart surgery. He's had like a double bypass, et cetera, there. So we do wish him and family well. But uh, yeah, as we said just before, in 1999, there were two significant events. One, the band got back up on stage again. And then secondly, at the end of the year, uh, which we're focusing on in this episode, uh, the Michael Hutchins solo uh, album got you know posthumously released. You know we're going to sort of unpack sort of you know what went into making this album. There's a there's a lot that really was going on at this particular time that I remember having lived it. You know, and secondly, having gone back and researched it, extra stuff that through maybe the lack of internet at those days or you know a social media presence, a lot of stuff that uh, was probably missed by the average punter. So. As much as we, we like to entertain on this podcast, we also equally like to inform. So uh, part of this sort of episode um, is going to be doing both. And as you and I spoke off air, you know, we might have to just press, you know, pause after an hour here because this could easily go into two episodes. So we're not going to restrict ourselves today. If we land it all in one, great. If that means we have to go into two episodes, um, we just want to do the album and Michael's uh, efforts uh, justice be. Absolutely, Hayden. Fantastic. Yeah. When yes. you always start off as a gentleman, what did you have uh, as a memory of this album? And again, I appreciate you were in the UK and probably out of the NXS world, but did this album have a presence for you at the time? Did it have something that came across your attention or you weren't quite in that NXS world at that time um, to recognise it? Yep, completely missed it. Went Different. right uh, under my radar. I did yeah. did not know about it until I think until we started this podcast actually. Um, yeah. And I must just say that um, it's one of my favourites. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess in terms of all of that, uh, let's you know try and unpack sort of where everything was uh, at that particular time. And I'm going to sort of you know probably start in 1995 a little bit there with actually the the inception of the album and, and what was being sort of created at the time and. Um, I think if you actually go back to that particular period, In Excess had uh, released the greatest hits album at the end, I think, or well, early 94, I think, uh, or t- towards the middle of 94. They'd effectively been off the road for about a year and a bit, and it was probably going to be about a three, four-year sabbatical between Full Moon Dirty Hearts and Elegantly Wasted. So there was this sort of 18-month period later when Michael, right in the middle of 95, had pretty much a new life, I guess, B. He was living in the UK. Uh, he was with Paula. He was uh, probably being hounded by the press. Um, his life had changed quite dramatically. Had really gone from being a bit under the radar in some respects as a rock star, like he had the rock stage persona, but he was never a guy hassled off off stage. And I guess living in the UK was probably one of the most famous sort of ex-wives of one of the most famous people. Probably didn't lend itself to uh, uh, low scrutiny, <laughs> and he found himself in that sort of cultural sort of zeitgeist of paparazzi. In 1995, if you remember, there was the Batman Forever uh, soundtrack that came out. Uh, you probably remember a couple of tracks from that. Do you remember the Seal song that was on that? Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, Kiss from a Rose, there was the U2 song. I'll Be Thrilled was on that album. You know, it's funny nowadays, um, soundtrack albums when we grew up were quite 
a big thing, weren't they? Very, like, uh, yeah. We, you and I probably grew up with uh, Grease and we grew up with, you know, Footloose and Flashdance and yep. Fame and yep. all these sort of things. Then you go into sort of like uh, Top Gun uh, was a big sort of soundtrack album and you know, soundtracks were quite a big thing. So Michael getting a gig on that soundtrack was pretty cool, I guess, for his, you know, solo, you know, pretensions at the time. He actually put a song on there called uh, The Passenger. That's an Iggy Pop song. Yes. Uh, so Iggy Pop did that uh, as a solo sort of track. And his version, as in Iggy's, is quite a commercial, upbeat, bouncy song. Michael's is actually quite the opposite. Very dark. It's quite dark. And, yeah. And, and bears very, very little resemblance to the Iggy one. It's a more slow, low-down version. And Tim Simonon uh, from Bomb the Bass was the guy who Michael worked with uh, on that. And I guess that was sort of the gestation of how, you know, Michael started to think about maybe recording more things and, coming up with some more sort of creativity there. Now, back in the UK, B, uh, do you remember a band called uh, Gang of Four? Yes. Yeah. Do you have a memory or anything that stands out with them? Because they were quite a gritty band that were quite a, uh, not a commercially successful band, but one of those sort of alternative pleasures. Yeah, they, they were like cool. Yes. Andy Gill, one of the main sort of uh, guys behind that band, he actually went on to not only to produce you know, Michael's album, but... He went on to work with the Chili Peppers in their early days. I That's think the Chili right. Peppers loved him and mm. uh, you know wanted to sound like you know um, Gang of Four. So what better than get the producer in? In terms of release dates, there are some reports saying the album's released actually eventually in October. Uh, I think Wikipedia states it a December fourteenth, nineteen ninety nine in Australia. I can't quite remember the difference between the two. I think the single was out September October, and then they waited until about December to release uh, the actual album. Now, friend of the podcast, B, Danny Saber, uh, he was quite heavily involved. Pretty much more after a lot of the songs were written, he came in as sort of as a co-producer, played his bass uh, arrangements, uh, helped co-produce it. Having done a double episode with Danny, anything that you remember from that interview that you want to share regarding Danny's skills or attributes? Yeah, well, Danny did a lot of the programming, not all of the tracks, because most of them were done with Andy Gill. Danny also played bass um, keyboards and guitar and they're quite prominent um, especially in um, a few of the last tracks as well mm. um, oh, which one was it Flesh and Blood I think it is or um, Breathe as well so yeah he's very prominent with those he's got quite a Lenny Kravitz sort of uh, funky element to it because he actually yep. played with Michael on stage as well don't forget do you remember before all this well, remember Michael got up at one of the Black Great gigs, I think, didn't he? Is that yeah, right? That's how they met yes. in the first place. Yes. Mm. Which, which probably at the end of the day, Danny being involved is one of the sort of the, the motivations, I guess, for um, uh, you know, Michael loving the Black Great you know, release around that particular time. Did you realise that the investments are by Chardonnay written in the bottom? And we know where Chardonnay is, don't we? Yes, well, Chardonnay used to be a character in one of those British, um, you know, soccer uh, soap opera shows. So there was a character called Chardonnay, so probably not her. But Chardonnay, I think, investments was the uh, the the lawyer, what's his McCallit guy, who we don't like to mention. Diamond. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to the music side of things, just a couple other people involved. There's a guy called Tim Palmer who'd worked with the Smashing Pumpkins and Pearl Jam. A lovely lady, great singer. You probably know Primal Screen, the band. A lady called Denise Johnson who sang on a couple of tracks we'll mention later. Joe Strummer. Yeah, well, Joe Strummer's involved. I think the uh, gentleman, first name who escapes me, Fowler. Oh, yeah, uh, Bernard. Bernard Fowler, that's right. Mm. I had Robbie Fowler in the soccer play band. <laughs> I've just put Soccer Man, sorry, you know, Bernard Fowler, of course, um, who got up on stage with Michael, I think, in his last ever singing gig uh, uh, with Billy Gibbons there at the Viper Room, you know. Uh, Bernard was there for that. It's funny you should mention Bernard, actually. I was watching View to a Kill. You remember the um, Bond movie? And he was the producer of View to a Kill, you know, right. Duran Duran, Bernard. Bernard. Uh, are you sure that's not Bernard Edwards? 
I think it's oh, Bernard Edwards. Oh, that was Bernard Edwards. Yeah. Can't get the two confused. Bernard Edwards is um, uh, Noel Rogers. That's uh, right. That's where I'm getting them yeah, mixed up. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Pardon uh, me. But, but Bernard had done a lot of vocal work, you know, with the Rolling Stones before. And uh, again, you know, Michael, uh, you know, had a good connection with him. Some of the more well-known people that listeners who uh, nerds like me, uh, if you actually look at the credit notes on the album, there's a gentleman called Kenny Aronoff. But uh, the big drum exit to that song is Kenny uh, Aronoff, and he was a, a long-time famous guy playing drums with the, the John Cougar Mellicamps band. Now, I think through association, he played on three tracks uh, that related to, I guess, the Michael's last recordings before he went out to Australia, where he went over and caught up, I think, with uh, Danny and recorded uh, vocals on three more songs that we'll get to. Uh, so the thought of having Kenny Aronoff on this album, I'm like, wow, that's really, really cool. He's one of the great, great drummers and also a great session drummer. Uh, lending his uh, cues and things. Also, too, a gentleman called Guy Pratt from the Rock Tours. Now, those that don't know, it's a fantastic podcast uh, run by Guy and uh, Gary. Gary from Spender Ballet. <laughs> from Spender Ballet. I mean, Guy's been a session musician, a touring musician for so many different people. So it's not surprising. Like, he's done stuff with Ice House, he's done stuff with, uh, with Madonna, mm. uh, lots of different things. Uh, and Guy obviously you know, led some of his um, uh, session work there to Michael's album. And also the fantastic Herb Ritz, who does the photography. There are some some great photos. Being a, you know, a normal male, you know, I don't sort of look at certain aspects of Michael's appearances and totally melt like you, B. But I do look at the artistry behind some of the photo work. And Michael and the band can't help but admire their ability to have some great photographers in their sort of arsenal. And I think some of the photos that were captured here uh, were fantastic, you know, for, for, for the cover of the black and white and these showing me the album as we speak and some really great photo work that uh, Herbert Rich has put together that uh, I think really makes the album classy. You know, it's a really classy uh, album cover and, and liner notes. Very classy. I always remember that famous interview with Paula and Michael when she says, so Herb, is he um, a dating agency? <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic, fantastic. Well, you know, the genesis of this time frame was, you know, after 95 there, or during 95, where Michael probably, you know, had you know, the buzz to be creative. I guess it was, you know, two years since former Dirty Hearts, you know, creativity had, had sort of elapsed. He was really in a groove there, I guess, where he wanted to record and do something outside the NXS palette. Andy Gill was someone who he admired, I guess, and through Tim Simmer, and he maybe have got Andy's details or knew Andy anyway and rang him up. Just, I think, sort of rather humbly said, oh, you know, would you like to come and, you know, you know, play some guitar on the album? And, and then sort of Andy said, yeah, and, you know, and then five minutes later, Michael run back and said, actually, would you like to come and co-write it with me? Yeah, there's some lovely um, photos of them at Villa. That's oh. right. And unfortunately, Andy's passed away. And, and I'd like to read something in a few months' time just about what Andy says, because literally of Andy or you know, many press clippings of, of what Andy had said, ironically, it was only six years after Max Q. When you think of the timeline, we sort of feel... They're years and years apart, but it's actually only six years since Max Q came out that this album, you know, was was commenced. But I think for for Michael, the idea of recording something sort of solo was was you know really really appealing because Max Q was again a collaboration with another musician and a band. But doing a solo album really, I think, piqued his interest. So he he rings up Andy Gill and says, "Oh, you know, would you like to come and you know play you know some guitar?" And uh, I was wondering if you you know just want to come down and you know um, I'm working on some solo stuff. Just work, you know, with Tim Simmons, and uh, so I said, you know, Andy said, sure, you know, you know, uh, I'll come down, and and then uh, a couple of minutes later, the phone sort of rung, and uh, it was even five minutes later, and Andy says, Michael's words were, what I was actually trying to say to you is, would you want to come down to the south of France and try writing some songs with me? He was slightly shy, and a little insecure in some ways, 
I think crazy people can often be a bit like that. Often the creative process is a way of, of proving something, Gil said. Hutchins was trying to prove uh, a lot of things to a lot of people during the entire duration of this recording, Andy says. So I think, you know, from the point of view there, um, you know, Michael's not an instrumentalist, so he needed sort of a musical guy to come down. But I also think Michael's the visionary and creative and the vocal stuff I'll talk about later. Like, you can actually hear the sounds in your head. I tell you, he was very good at this, actually. It was George Michael. He was quite good at knowing a melody and a chorus in his head, communicating that to an, an, uh, another musician, and then they can then put that down. And he, he knows, like, higher, lower, different ranges and things. I think Michael's sort of artistry was a little bit underestimated, and this album proves that it was underestimated. Yeah. So, yeah, they went down to the south of France, and, uh, you know, I know uh, Paula was down there with Michael at the time, and occasionally Paula would be lying on the bed watching them sort of record in the little room and little outfits there just trying to provoke Michael and you know, tease uh, Andy and having a good old time. And on the weekends, Andy's, I think, wife would fly down and spend the weekends with them, and... They were there for you know a, you know a couple of months doing that and and effectively they're doing demos and writing and creating they're not actually in a studio so much you know doing all the mixes and all the production work but they're getting that sort of beard or foundation sort of down pat ironically andy as he said look he wasn't a big inexcess fan um but he always admired michael and what he was able to produce and come across and probably been around the industry long enough to know that you know what's reported and what people are like is different to what they actually are um, and I think we've often spoken about Michael and his friends. I mean, everybody loved him, you know. Even those who hated him uh, before they met him loved him once they met him. That's right. Mm. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I'll pause for a moment. Any thoughts on just that with Andy and just the recording process there, B? So what you said there, I didn't even realise what you said about the Max Q and this album, the six-year yeah. difference. That's not yeah. a lot, is it, really, when, no. when you think about no. it? No, I mean, ultimately it was a 10-year difference before they came out. Right, yeah, um, but, but still. But, you know, Michael mm. probably had enough recent history to go, I sort of liked having a little bit of autonomy. And, um, you know, we don't have a lot of quotes uh, about Michael regarding the recording of this album because he, it didn't come out when he was alive. It was really put together later, but... Um, I'm just going to jump ahead. I had this little quote that that I did find. Michael's thoughts were, and I'll quote from now, he says, As someone once said, a great band is a great compromise. You can get around the table and play poker. With a solo thing, uh, you have the awesome responsibility of doing it by yourself. And I think ultimately, a band is a compromise. It's a democracy. Um, there are so many bands break up because ultimately people just don't get on and some people want to have more of their point of view on an album and it's just hard. And think about all the bands, you know, that um, have been together for many years. I mean, a lot of them have had lineup changes because people just shit each other That's off. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think also too for Michael, you know, being host a commercial peak of NXS, he had something to say. I think also too for Michael, you know, being, um, you know, host a commercial peak of NXS, um, he had something to say and he wanted to say it and not just in a vocal side of things, but probably in a in, a, in an instrumentation side, in a, in a, in a feeling, a vibe, a, a, a structure. And at the end of the day, it's his fault if it's great. It's his, his fault if it's not. It's pretty much there, isn't That's it? Right. I mean, the lyrics say it all. I mean, this is such a gritty, gritty album. That's right. And I think, look, without going jumping into the uh, the recordings, I mean, lyrically, as we know on this album, I mean, you know, he's never bared his soul, you know, more than this. And yeah. I think a lot of our listeners who love Elegantly Wasted like we do, I don't think Elegantly Wasted would have been as good without this album. Yes. Because, you know, there was an honesty that Michael took from this album and to the lyrics for that album, which were something that, uh, you know, stood out. You know, I don't think you would got a song like Just a Man if you didn't get a song like Possibilities on this album, you know? Heard a story It sounded easy Got a new skin and I'm lying through my teeth I was shook up Intoxicated During the juices Of the possibilities Of the possibilities once Michael had passed and there was this sort of, you know, situation where we had all these sort of recordings and things around, a lot of the uh, stuff was, you know, I think for Michael, 
the idea of interference is why he didn't was why he financed this. He he goes, well, if I finance this solo album, I make the decisions. I'm paying everybody. Ultimately, you know, if it makes money, it makes money. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But it's he the money men weren't involved. Ironically, though, for Michael passing away, it wasn't like the recording companies were suddenly you know uh, you know the the issue like he thought they were. The money men come in. It was actually the family. It was the lawyers. It was the Chardonnay Investments. It was. It was all of these, but who owns the rights? It was, you know, it was really caught up in that. So it was probably, as we know, like if you think about it, there was a two-year sort of difference between Michael passing and this album coming out. But a lot of uh, legwork had to be done. And I guess the sort of the original sort of owners of, you know, well, not the owners, I guess the, the publishing company that actually had rights to the label that was recorded on was actually Richard Branson's Virgin 2 label. And I think he was quite keen for this to see the light of day. However, there were a lot of haggling, particularly regarding Michael's estate and regarding the ownership. And Andy said at the time, 95% of the album was actually done. It wasn't like some posthumous albums where they're trying to drag every vocal. Like, if you think of the Beatles recently, they've released a song, right? Yeah. And they've got John up there. But a lot of it is very contrived to pull John's vocal out. And, you know, it's 55 years later. I mean... A lot of this stuff was actually virtually completed. Ready to go. It wasn't completed. You know, it was mm. just a you know an add-on vocal here, uh, you know, a lyric there from Bono. You know, it was it was virtually you know the word salvageable. It was more than salvageable. It was it was it was releasable. Hang on, can I just ask a question? Yeah, yeah, sure. This was started in '95, you say, yep. and it was released in 1999. Correct. When was Michael and thinking they were going to release it? Well, here's the interesting thing, is that if we go back to taking the uh, the raw demos and then the song rights and things like that, they knew they needed a, another producer to maybe come and help, so they enlisted the services of Danny Saber, obviously. But this, you know, had recordings sort of done at Michael's house, house in the south of France, where a lot of the, the writing, the demos were done, but they then took it to Tower Bridge, where Andy was his local sort of studio that he worked at. They went to the real world studios in Wilshire in Bath, uh, or Bath in Wilshire, where Peter Gabriel, you know, set up the real world studios and they did some production stuff there. And then obviously there was stuff done in LA over different periods and then towards the end of Michael's life. I think what happened though is they got to a certain point where, I don't know, maybe Michael, you know, got to a certain point by 96, suddenly the NXS bandwagon was coming around again. They started recording in Canada for that. And they, yeah, Michael shelved this, like from a release point of view, it wasn't quite ready to release. He had a fair bit going on in his life in 96 uh, with Paula and babies and then in excess coming back into vogue and things like that with uh, recording for them. So so I think it was parked with a view of revisiting, okay? Hopefully that gives some sort of answer and clarity. Mm. In terms of the songwriting breakdown, nine of the songs were co-writes with, uh, with Andy Gill, three were with Danny Saber uh, and one with Tim Simonon. And then you could actually argue that one of the songs slide away uh, was with both Michael, Andy Gill, and also Bono, adding a, a bit of a lyric in as well. You know, we go through the tracks a bit later, who wrote, co-wrote what and where and all that sort of stuff. I thought what was quite interesting, and possibly you discovered this, you know, when you were chatting to to Danny, that the three songs that were recorded in LA just before he died uh, were Possibilities, which we have confirmed, um, and Likely Breathe, and also uh, the other one, Baby It's All Right, because Danny has some co-writing credits on one or two of those. So... So, uh, and with Kenny Aronoff probably being in California and the drummer playing on those, it makes sense that they were probably tracks that were being worked on towards the end of Michael's, um, just before Michael flew back to Australia. So from that sort of point of view, I guess uh, that's where things were at. Um, as I said earlier, you know, it was self-financed. It removed a lot of the record company sort of pressure from Michael and interference. It meant he could record at his own rate. And and it was when it was finished, it was finished. And he wasn't under deadlines, etc. there. A lot of bands get advances from record companies. They've got tours lined up. You know, very, very famously, you 2 you know, through words of wisdom, they said, never ever book a world tour until the album's finished. And the pop pop album was one of those ones where they kept tweaking with it and they weren't quite finished and anyway, they ended up releasing it and, you know, they weren't happy with the mixes and all that sort of stuff there as folklore suggests. But Michael wasn't under a deadline like a band deadline because it was his own thing, it was his own money. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think all that adds to the integrity of the release that, you know, songs weren't quite 
released until they were ready, um, albeit he wasn't around to tick it off. But those close to him, like Danny and Andy, they were instrumental in getting this album out, what it meant to Michael. Yes. You know, I, I don't think this album was put out as a cash grab from a an in-excess management label wanting to maximise Michael's last words. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what Danny says. Yeah, this was put out for the right reasons at the right time. Yeah, although there's people close to Michael that said that Michael wasn't ready to put the album out and he wasn't yeah. completely happy with all of it. Let's do some sliding doors uh, with Ultra Moments. It's 1997. They're finished the Elegantly Wasted Tour in Australia. You know, they've now gone off to hibernation there. It's early 1998. Michael's still with us. Flash forward to 1999. I, I can't help but think that Michael would have revisited this and gone to do stuff on it. I mean, the fact that he was doing stuff on it seven days before, sorry, three days before he died, yeah. suggests it was part of his sort of uh, direction in 98. Yeah. And also, remember when we had Bruce on, Bruce Butler, and Bruce yep. had taken a telephone call from Michael saying he wanted to do another album with um, Ollie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who knows? There could have been more. Yeah, well, no one ever knows, but... NXS could have ultimately called it a day after Elegantly Wasted. It could have been at that particular point where, you know, Michael and the band may have come 98, 99, decided to go, hey, listen, you know, 20 years, it's been great and we've said everything we want to say musically, um, we're now going to go our separate ways. What they all agreed on and they all knew was the end of 97, they were going to have a year off in 98. And if you think back to it, the last time they did that was in 19, sort of 89, where they took a year off with Kick. And arguably, 94, 95, 96, they did take some time off as well. But but effectively, you know, Michael was uh, in a position where I think 98, he w- would have put time into this album and would have probably sort of started to tweak it uh, to what it wanted to be for him. Yeah. I'm glad, though, that Andy and Danny were quite instrumental, pardon the pun, in getting it released and that their vision was, you know, from the days they were working on it with Michael, was also the vision that it came out with, you know, that they, they knew what Michael wanted. Well, Danny's yeah. still passionate about this album now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And we might hear from um, him next year, actually, about some more songs. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing. Okay, Ben, I'll throw this to you. I'll catch it. Okay. The level of solo artists, or let's, let me rephrase, the level of solo frontmen who have gone off to release a solo album from famous bands and been successful is very, very low. The percentage of people succeeded. And why do you think that is the case? Let me some examples, be of some people who've had solo albums and let me just check if you remember any of these. Freddie Mercury's. It wasn't very good, was it? No. Keith Richards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mick Jagger. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Some I've of the got one they- for you, though. Phil yeah. Collins. Yeah, okay. Interesting interesting take on that. That's that's the exception that disproves the rule. Bono, he's never done one. No. <laughs> I wonder why. Michael Stipe from R.E.M. is just about to release one. Yes. Okay, Simon Le Bon. Well, they did do a fraction, didn't they? They did. They went off, he did a band, he did a side project called Arcadia. Oh, the other guys I were the Power Station. Yeah, and Power Station, yeah. but never Alleg- just the lead singer on his own. You're right there, yeah. Okay, Robert Happy Smith from The Cure. He's never done one, has he? No, he no. hasn't. But here's an interesting scenario. They very actually rarely succeed. The, the more successful the band, it's almost an inversing. The less likely the solo albums is going to succeed. Now, let me just throw a cut. You, you had a good one there with Phil Collins, and we're going to park him for a moment. But let me go the opposite angle here. Now, let's look at pop idols here, okay, who leave successful bands. Generally, they leave them early or at the right time. Okay, I'll throw these names at you. A lot of them are English. <laughs> George Michael. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Famously said, I'm not planning on going solo. And like, then he did. Okay. <laughs> Harry Styles. Yes. What band was he in? Oh, what were they One called? Direction. One Direction. Was it? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. Robbie Williams. Yes, take that. Justin Timberlake. Oh, yeah. Okay. Ooh. Diana Ross. Oh, the Supremes, yeah. Beyonce. You could argue every one of those people we've mentioned have had had more successful, their albums or their craft has been more successful once they left the bands they're in to suddenly go off and do their own solo stuff. Mm. And I think that's a little bit the difference between sort of the pop world and the rock cred world. Yeah, you know? yeah. Where, you know, you're servicing sort of two different markets in some respects. I mean, I love a couple of Mick Jagger solo albums, but they were not commercial juggernauts. I think a lot of these singers who go off and try something separate 
often come home to home base, particularly Freddie Mercury, going, shit, we are really a sum of our parts operation. And the average punter and fan of a band, unless they're really invested, they almost see the singer going off doing solo work as a bit like cheating on them, you know? And, you know, let's be honest, you know, Chris Murphy was very nervous about Michael doing the Max Q stuff. Uh, he wasn't involved here at this particular time, but you'd imagine how, how nervous he would have been about Michael going off doing this solo project, okay? And, you know, to Michael's, I guess, you know, desire, you know, he wanted to do a solo because here's some of the reasons artists do them. One, to self-express. No band compromises. Have their own signature sounds and flourishes and sort of, you know, imprimatur on the recording, you know. You know, feel an urge, you know, a creative urge. Can I do this by myself? Am I talented? Or is the other band members more talented? You know? It's a bit like an audit on their ability, B. You know, once you put something out by yourself, whether it's commercially su successful, that's one thing. But artistic-wise, if it's artistically successful... That's the real measurement there. And we'll get into the reviews of this album later, which thankfully are very, very good. And I think, you know, Michael also had something to say. You know, he wanted to voice about his lack of privacy. He wanted to voice about the pressure of fame. He was searching for some sort of redemption, I think, because he was caught up in the Bob Paula world. He had so many emotions going through himself. And I think, as I said during that famous interview he did with uh, John Stewart, Laurie really loved is that the lyrics are the way he could express and get it off his chest. I don't think the lyrics he was going through this were very much in excess band related lyrics. He wanted no. this to be a solo yeah. type project. Mm. It's interesting that you might want to put an album out and people, you know, shallow hunters go, oh yeah, but it didn't sell much or I didn't do this or it didn't chart that well. Well, yeah, but what about how good the songs were? Yeah. Probably someone like Lou Reed, might, I mean, he didn't sell much with the Velvet Underground, he didn't sell much solo, but he's probably a guy like Phil Collins who, who went off and was able to have a solo career because the Velvet Underground were really Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. But, you know, not many people go off and have a very commercially successful career in rock music having left or in unison with their band, gone off and done a side project. Mm -hmm. Very rare. Yeah, you're right there. I mean, Depeche Mode have stayed together, haven't they, as well? Yeah, they're, they're you don't see Dave Gay and you know, Gahan, you know, solo releases, do no. you, or Martin Gore or whatever, you know? No. Things like that. I mean, Vince Clark, he went off and did stuff with Yazoo, remember, Vince mm. Clark? Yeah, that's And then right. Erasure and things, but he never went back to Depeche Mode, you know? No. So, you know, Although, for that sort of thing, actually, you know, uh, Robert Smith, he was in um, Susie and the Banshee. Well, yeah, he did guitar stuff with Susie and the Banshees when they were sort of touring around a bit as a... Yeah. as a sort of a side thing, but she was an influence to him, so it was like an honour to, to go out and be a guitarist for them, you know? I tried to laugh about it, cover it all up with lies. I tried to laugh about it, hiding the tears in my eyes, cause boys don't the other interesting thing for Michael this particular time being, and this is a really, really cool thing for you to maybe share, is just how vibrant was the dance and the 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 jazz fused and the the uh, the electronic sort of you know mass sounds going on in the UK in 1995. Like it was a real movement, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it's massive. Do you want to just share your experiences there within what's PG? You know, well, it was very clubby, wasn't it? It was very yeah. electronic coming through, but yeah. in a Lots of samples. Yeah, let, let me throw these ones at you because okay. I know, I know um, you'll know these. I throw at you. Like th this is just the bands that were hitting it, and artists that were hitting in '95 on top of my head. You had Massive Attack and Porter's Head. You know, around the Blue Lines. You know, period. You had the Verve. You know, their first album with Northern Soul. You had the very famous Oasis and you know the Blur Battle. You had Primal Scream, probably a couple of years earlier, but still building on that Screamadelica album in '91. Uh, you had the second coming of the Stone Roses. Yeah, um, you had Black Break that were, were doing what they were doing. You had, you know, you know Jarvis Cocker and what he was doing. You know, with his outfit. You know, you had Catatonia off the top of my head. You had New Order still putting out vinyl music. You had just such a, a, a collection of of sounds that were were both you know jazz infused. Some of them were, were party songs. The Prodigy. How can we forget the Prodigy? Yeah, how um, can you? What they were doing. I mean, it was just such a really fertile uh, mixture of sounds coming out of the UK and then Black Grape and everything from, from, from those guys, you know? Well, all of those bands are excellent. They were always in the charts or in the independent charts as well. 
And the influences on Michael for this um, album, you can see quite a lot of different um, elements coming into them. The porter's head through the dark side of it. Yep. And then you can hear there's still a lot of influence of the funk element as well coming from In Excess because there's a couple of tracks, I think. Yeah, In Excess could have done that one, actually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some sort of some parallels there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I know B will have a couple of little, little interesting song sounds come out from this period, but, you know, between probably 1990, sort of 490 to 97, it was just such a great scene in the UK with music that that allowed artists to sort of have a a, you know, a, ch- a chance to get traction in the US, Australia, and, and it was a really great period. But um, I did read a, a great quote by somebody who uh, described Michael on this particular album, and I th- thought you would like this, B. Um, you know, Michael was really impressed, you know, and I think in excess to their credit were too, with a range of styles and sounds and moods and, and emotional, lyrical honesty on this album. But someone said that Michael's vocals on this particular album, I think it was either Andy or Danny, one of the two, he says, his voice slides, bends, yelps, clones, taunts, snarls, and yes, B, seduces. <laughs> and I thought that was a really cool, almost... Uh, Capturing, capturing, you know, description of Michael vocally. And like, it's true because when yeah. I was reviewing it and I've written down some of those words that you've said and, and twisting as well, you know, yeah. he, he does bend it and you like you go oh, yeah. low and you're like, yeah. he really draws you in. Um, yeah. He's really telling a story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we've always talked about his phrasing being fantastic and I think in Max Q, we took a lot of vocal risks that, you know, Andrew, I think, was a bit jealous on. said, why haven't you done those with excess? Well, you know, it was all... Why, you know, why didn't you let me do one was probably his reply, you know. And so when you are solo, you can play with the palette, you know. You're not governed by conventions. You There's no rules. There's no guardrail saying you can and you can't. You work with other people. Michael's the boss. He's paying everybody. So, And I don't think he had a bunch of, you know, sycophants agreeing on everything there. I mean, Andy and Danny, uh, you know, are pretty much straight shooters who would probably tell him if something wasn't working. But when we get to the album, there was such a nice balance, as you were sort of alluding to, B, of, you know, some really upbeat tracks. There was some really good electronica stuff, um, some sort of different type of funky things going on, some sort of jazz, sort of fused sort of rock tracks. This is my own phrasing down, B, but I said, there's some really personal sort of pleading type ballads without the usual inaccessified flourishes. I like so, how you say pleading because I wrote one one song. It's very pleading, isn't yeah. it? Like almost like you're breaking your heart yeah. into and it. And we know that you know, it's just some great string orchestral arrangement, especially "Never Tear Us Apart" by my side. But you know these ballads don't have those flourishes on them, and you know it's good because it's not an excess album. Um, and I think it was really quite truly quite a mature collection of songs. Like they really do hold up particularly well. I also like the fact, and through a little bit of research, was that Annie said, "Look." Yeah, some of them a little bit about Paula and uh, about Bob and things, but to some extent, but, you know, it was inspired by Black Grape, it was inspired by all of his musical loves. A lot of the songs and lyrics weren't about the obvious and things like that, you know, because I know we wrote them together. Yeah, it's nice that it's not a love album again, you know, or, or got yeah. all lovey-dovey. I'll tell you yeah. what I, I find a bit sad, though, and it's only because of the era that there is no vinyl of this. It's only in CD. Well, you know, never know. I mean, the fact that uh, I was listening to it today and I was listening to it on Spotify because I've got the CD version, which is in my garage underneath uh, the missing evidence in the JFK trial somewhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was listening to you know, the album on Spotify today uh, and yesterday just to sort of, you know, remind myself because it's probably been 10, 15 years since I played it. Um, because to me, it's an album that it's not a, it's not, it's not a, go, a go guilty pleasure like a chocolate bar late at night. I mean, this is... Some heavy work going on here. Some heavy stuff, yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I I don't know about you, B, but, you know, for me at the time, this was quite healing. Coming out in 99, to me, this release was like the coronial inquiry of Michael, lyrically, telling me where he was at. Yeah. Um, it was like two years later. Very two years. Yeah. It's but it, 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 when you play the lyrics and you hear the emotion, you go through it all and then you combine it with the oh, book and yeah. people's sort of words and the chorus report, like, to me, this is Michael at his most confessional. Uh-huh. It's why I've never been one of these people where I'm like, oh, did he get up to no good? Or was it all you know, part of this? Just, I've never had any doubts after around 99, 2000 when you, know, you listen to this album and you listen to the learned people and you read the right books and hear the right things from the right people and, and the coronial inquest. So I've never really, after the year 2000, been one of these, oh, did he just get up to no good one night? No, no not at all. I mean, these, these lyrics... 
you know, that we'll share, you know, when we dive deep, a, a quite um, uh, confessional of where he really was at. Um, sad, sadly, B, you know? Yeah, it is, it is sad. It's very sad because we know the outcome afterwards as well that we lost beautiful Michael. rock star the tv um yep. little mini series thing that they put out there yep. um interweaves um, a lot of these songs as well of this yeah. album um yeah because that was not an authorized in excess you know release now chris murphy was always particularly anything that didn't fall under his ownership he was always quite territorial with but but to his defense that doco that came out four or five years ago whatever there was very um maybe six years ago was very much like you know Colin Diamond was on a you know you know talking at length. Um, it was the, some of the solo stuff. It was not in excess material. It was not an authorized account from the band. It was people pontificating. It was probably a little bit trashy, you know, the way it was sort of put together. Not Danny his contribution, but probably the producers. I remember the reporter and the way it was all contrived and it was all sort of you know smoke and you know and mirrors and all sorts of contrivances nick egan was on there and bono was on there as well and they didn't know that colin was involved yeah but you gotta remember when people put archive of footage together it doesn't mean they're actually in the doco it means that people have dragged stuff and put it in why i love richard lowenstein's documentary that came out a couple of years after that was because almost that was a repostal or whatever to this Michael Diamond stuff, and, and Rich just got sick of hearing this bullshit. The only sort of thing that was curious for me about the doco was just hearing a song Friction that we'd never really heard before that Danny had, and some stuff related to Michael's recordings and things. But but that was all tied up with who owns what, and Colin owns this, and all sorts of stuff, and we all know sort of what Richard Blowenstone had to go through to get, you know, Tiger involved to get some of the recordings for that soundtrack, you know, uh, well, that movie to be released. So, look... Bringing you back to sort of where, where it's all at, to take on this album, you know, and listen to it, for me, it was like a two, three, four-year thing where I played a lot, listened to a lot, it was quite healing. But not revisited, not because I don't like the songs, but it's just a time and a place where I don't want to visit again. Having said that, putting on the songs on today and just listening to them with a more of a, a current lens, they still hold up really well, you know, and that's one of the legacies is, you know, doesn't album hold up. There are some songs in a lot of people's, you know, canons of musicianship, just don't sound great 20 years later. I mean, you mentioned Phil Collins earlier. Like, his solo stuff, really. Some of the stuff like Susudio and the, the click tracks and the, the fake brass. I mean, some of his recordings in the 80s really sound dated. Like, I, I'll go on a limb here. I think Michael Jackson, you know, on a musical level, his music sounds very dated. Like, the Thriller album, you know, some of the production stuff is very dated. I don't think Prince is a, you know, the obvious comparison sounds as dated as Michael. He does sound in some songs. But I think Phoenix is his credit, and you know, U2 and some of the bigger bands, the Beatles, Powderfinger, these, you know, there's some of these amazing bands. The legacy is their music still sounds great in 2023. And that's often what they try and do. They try to write it, you know, for 50 years ahead. Yeah. But the Beatles still sound great, don't they? <laughs> the real great bands don't sound dated. Like in excess. We <laughs> should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if you haven't signed the t- petition, you better get it done this year. Well, we haven't got to the songs yet, but can I throw in, uh, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but uh, before we might sign off and have our dinner and uh, park part one of this, I'd like to go off in a little bit of a positive of three uh, sort of reviews uh, of this particular album and three different people that uh, are from publications at the time mattered, you know, in the musical world. Like nowadays, anyone can write a review, but back then, you know, Rolling Stone was probably, you know, quite a significant uh, publication that you would go check things out. Um, All Music was a very significant publication. And there was another one called Pop Matters at the time was quite significant. So I'll park the Rolling Stone one till last. All Music Color Wolf said, uh, I'm going to give a three out of five uh, and stated that there's enough good material here to, to want to listen and shed a tear. Uh, plus, curiously and occasionally, some exciting uh, collections uh, that showcases the more vulnerable side of Michael Hutchins. 
The album's quite autobiographical uh, and resonates beyond uh, its sound and its faintly kinky pedigree, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Okay. Yeah. Second to that, Pop Mattis, Patrick uh, Shade. Uh, he rated an 8 out of 10 B. Pop Mattis B, uh, Patrick Shade, rated an 8 out of 10. And he stated that Michael Hutchins' eponymously titled solo album is not a disappointing pastime. And this piece is thankfully an incredible success. That's nice. And the third one is uh, David Freak, who is really a fantastic journalist and was really the chief editor for Rolling Stone America for a very, very long time. I'm just going to go over to my little uh, photos B in my phone because I did get a little print off of this today. David gave uh, the album uh, three and a half out of five, which is a pretty strong, uh, you know, uh, review for what obviously occurred. David, uh, you might have seen in many interviews before, you know, through various artists, like he's, he's a very well respected guy. He happened to say, This record arrives with sadness. The recent memory of Michael Hutchins' 1997 suicide, uh, the knowledge that he left this project, his first solo album outside of NXS, unfinished at his death. Bono's eulogistic uh, vocal contribution to Slide Away. There is also the accidental prophecy of lines like, Saw a million pieces of the shade by men hanging from a chandelier, compounded by the unintended live the song title put the pieces back together. Much of the music on this record has a great chill as well. Beats that click like hills on a wet sidewalk, doleful strings, reflective electronics. Uh, it is as if Hutchins beset by devils, he was unable to exercise through in excess funk and pop, set out to write his own epitaph, then could not bear to finish it. But don't get blindsided by hindsight. In life, Hutchins was as serious about his craft as he was intoxicated by being a rock star uh, and living the way. And on Michael Hutchins, co-produced by Andy Gill and Danny Saber, he set his arena rock torch, singing a provocative landscape with melancholy machine music. Songs like Possibilities is an elegant grenade of self-doubt, of which the lyrics, it says, it's so strange how my life's changed. I know nothing about the people that I touched, which obviously we all know is possibilities. And then also added to uh, the review, Hutchins doesn't exactly say much musically in all I'm saying, but the bend and tremor in his voice clearly broadcasts a fear of impending loneliness. I think that's a very, very uh, salient sort of description. In the midst of that upbeat moments like uh, we get on the inside of a straight line, uh, we can't help but sounding uh, inappropriate. <laughs> they lack muscular conviction as well as uh, like in excess without the cocky guitars. Ironically, Mike Hutchins' greatest strength is its bleak honesty at its best. Hutchins sounds like he's stepping out of routine, not slipping into darkness, but history provided otherwise, and we are left with the last recorded testament of a man who had much he wanted to get out in the song but ran out of time and strength. That was well written, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I, I, you know, there's definitely, you know, the album's not perfect. And, you know, there is one or two songs on there that, you know, through maybe time has aged as well. But I like reviewers who review the material, don't do a sort of a, uh, an attack on the person. Yes. Uh, he related the person to the recording, but he didn't go about the person, go off and mention the word Paulie Yates in the whole interview. Next. Exactly. I think, you know, yeah. as we sort of close off this episode, the seriousness of this album was given in the mainstream sort of media and the publications and promotion was a little bit criminal given the quality that it existed on the album. Uh, and we'll dive into that next week. But I think as an artistic statement, B, really looking forward to, you know, just explaining next week why. Next week. Um, next episode. <laughs> why? I'm having two weeks off. I know. <laughs> you you I know. can come why by next is, week. <laughs> why it is a very good artistic statement. Because... Charts come and go, you know, you know, what would you rather, you know, a song that you know was number five in the charts that's crap or a song that was number eight in the charts like Don't Change that was fantastic, you know? People in America love Don't Change. It's one of the most seminal bands, uh, songs that's covered in excess. Made number eight in the charts. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Bitter Tears made 46, but, you know, you don't see people running around playing Bitter Tears. Don't Change is played. So chart positions don't, and commerciality don't always equate to quality. So... I thought to round off, those reviews were quite touching, quite important, and I think hopefully we've set up uh, next year. <laughs> yes, sorry, just put it on the disc, please. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's my <laughs> mini log delivery arriving. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. What you got? So, uh, what have you ordered? I don't have to dish you in the audience because I've got uh, Bacantonese beef and I've got a special fried rice. Oh, no, you're making me hungry now. Right, I'm going. Well, that sounds yummy, Hayden. I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. And I'm sure that everybody is enjoying their Christmas time. Hug your loved ones. Well, can we set up uh, next year by going out with a little bit of a track from the album? Oh, which one? 
Right. So we're not doing that in the usual rap, but we'll go with a little bit of a track. And why don't we just go out with the, the, the showstopper that starts the albums off, that wets the whistle for next uh, for next year when we come back in. And uh, this probably sums up us a little bit, B, but uh, I like the sort of sediment behind this uh, song and the album opener called Let Me Show You. And it's got one of our favourites, Joe Strummer from The Clash on it in those uh, fantastic sort of sections. And if you want to hear him, it's in that give it up, give it in bit. Um, Joe's putting his little imprimatur on it, who also sadly passed away two years later. Actually, I think it was about 2001 Joe passed away. So two years after this album came out, you know, Michael loved The Clash. You know, the fact that I think Joe jumped on the album to help out was he probably really liked Michael and but sort of known each other quite a bit over the years. Timmy loved The Clash. You know, Timmy Ferris loved The Clash. So, yeah, a little bit of a stomper to go out. Let me show you. Well done, Michael, on the album. Well done to Danny. Well done to Andy. Well done to Tim. Well done to everyone involved. Well done to UB, 2023. Well done to me. Well done to Menulog. It's a goodbye from me. <laughs> it's a goodbye from me. See you next year. Bye. Dutchie, and you've been listening to In Access, Access All Areas with Hayden and Bee.